Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris here, uh, here at in Austin at the headquarters of Texas Parks and Wildlife. And I'm joined by Mr. Dacus Geesley. And we had a really cool interaction kind of outside that led us to this point. And we want to touch on a few things, but I, I was invited. Thank you, Mr. Dacus, for uh, I never thought I'd be here recording a podcast uh, with TPWD. And kind of as we were talking, um, you know, one of the topics we'll talk about is really kind of lending some transparency into kind of the TPWD process, right? And processes and, and kind of some things that you guys are doing out there, uh, as well as dovetail into the upcoming scoping meetings that you guys are going to have up and down the Texas coast. But Mr. Dacus, sir, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here at Parks and Wildlife headquarters. Hopefully this won't be the last time we see you up here. I hope not, sir. That'd be awesome. Um, like we do in every podcast, uh, we typically kind of get a chance to, to know the guests, right? Because our listenership, you know, extends all the way up the East Coast and obviously down here through the Texas coast. And so for those maybe listening outside the Texas coast uh, and those for who are listening, you know, here in Texas, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. If you can give us a little bit of backstory, maybe how you got to Texas Parks and Wildlife, but a little bit about the man uh, behind the mission. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Well, first and foremost, I love fishing. I'm an, I'm an avid angler, and I'll kind of circle back to that here in a minute. Um, my current role here, which I'm blessed to have here at the department, I'm Deputy Director of the Coastal Fisheries Division. So I manage and oversee our operations, our monitoring operations, which have been in place since the mid-1970s, but also oversee our hatchery, our hatchery operations, some of our hatcheries along the coast. We raise more red drum than any place in the world, and we're really ramping up our spotted sea trout. So oversee some of those keystone um, operations to our to our division. Um, I'm a I'm traditionally a freshwater fisheries biologist by trade. Okay. Went through graduate school and did a lot of small stream work uh, early on. And uh, as soon as I got out of uh, grad school over at Stephen F. Austin State University over in the Piney Woods in Nacogdoches, Texas, I moved uh, moved up to Colorado. Um, always had a, a draw to uh, what it, if it was magnetic draw or just the, the sure. cold weather or whatever. Moved to Colorado and, and worked as a as a trout biologist, fisheries biologist for about seven years. And um, at a crossroads in my life was really looking to uh, get back home. Home is where the heart is, and mm-hmm. I'm definitely a, a tried and true Texan to the core. Um, and made my way back here about 2007 Mm -hmm. and have been with the department since 2012. Worked at the uh, regulatory, environmental regulatory agency, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, for about five years when I first moved back to Texas and Mm -hmm. uh, have just, you know, really enjoyed my time and uh, the the people we work for and work with here at Parks and Wildlife and kind of climbed the ladder since mm-hmm. that time in 2012. So I've been here a little over 10 years. So your current position in Deputy Director of the Coastal Fisheries, uh, tell us a little bit about what that entails. 
Sure. So, you know, day-to-day operations, Chris, it's anything and everything that y'all probably hear about, uh, you know, oyster issues. Mm-hmm. We've certainly had our had our time um, dealing with a lot of the, uh, you know, the oyster um complex oyster issues along the coast uh flounder issues any of our fisheries management issues whether it's our sport fish uh both inshore so our big three or you know no no surprise to you and your listenership or red drum spotted sea trout and flounder southern flounder but also work um collaboratively with the other gulf states Mm -hmm. uh florida mississippi alabama louisiana and serve on the the gulf council it's the the gulf of fish gulf of mexico Fisheries Management Council mm. to work collaboratively with those other states and with the National Marine Fisheries Service to establish, um, you know, rules and regs that govern federal water fisheries, those offshore offshore fisheries. So, in addition to that, you know, um, just day to day operations, fielding calls, working with partners um, collaboratively with our research institutions along the coast. Uh, we've got some premier science science-driven institutions along the coast that we uh, we partner with and fund several of their uh, research studies. And then, um, you know, running through the statewide, statewide cycle, it's a year yearly cycle in which we look at our various trends in abundance and catch rates and angler, angler um, you know, preferences in relation to the game fish that mm-hmm. we manage. Now, in your directorate, as a deputy director, uh, in your directorate, about for our listenership and for me, right? I mean, how big is your team, roughly? We've got, you know, all said and some in total, Chris, we've got about 200, a little less than 200 uh, full-time employees within our division. And I oversee roughly, I don't know, two-thirds of that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, great folks. Yeah, and so, yeah, to shout out the team. And and that's one of the things, you know, I was telling, you know, a couple of friends that were, uh, hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to TPWD, and... Uh, do you have anything you want me to pass on? And, and the thing that kind of came up with, you know, the people that I spoke with was thank you. Uh, thank you to, you know, TPWD. And anytime they get out, of, you know, get a chance to kind of come across, you know, uh, enforcement or those, you know, biologists doing uh, collection, you know, or sampling or whatever it is, uh, we know it's a, a fairly thankless job, right? And so to that end, uh, not only I'll be the vessel, but I also uh, echo that same sentiment, which is just generally thank you to you and the team, uh, because we are so passionate, right, about our fishery, about, uh, you know, this, our coast, right, our environment and things that, you know, kind of render us peace, right, and obviously livelihoods for some of those folks, right, and so, you know, having a core group of uh, of about 200 folks in, in that division, in that director, excuse me, um, kind of collecting and, and, and doing all that stuff to provide um, data for you guys to make decisions, right? Data-driven decisions, uh, that's important, right? And, and it can also just fall on deaf ears and people kind of take it for granted. So again, that's a long way to say thank you to you and the team for, for kind of doing what you do. Well, that I can tell you that that warms my heart. That uh, that means a lot to us. Um, our folks, you know, myself included, we're very we're very focused on the mission and that's you know conserving and protecting our wild places and wild mm-hmm. things and making making fishing better yeah. not only for us but for our 
our future generation. Right. So, you know, we, we oftentimes catch a lot of criticism, but <laughs> when, we, when we're able to, uh, you know, rope in some of those, some of those accolades and those, those sentiments of appreciation, it really hits home. So yeah. I could turn the tables right back on you and yeah. say appreciate everything you're doing to get the word out and also the, your service to our country, Chris. Yeah, no worries, sir. Yeah, thank you uh, for that. So, um, okay, so not to belabor the point, uh, because I think, you know, talking about catching a lot of criti- criticism, and one of those uh, points of criticism recently came up by the sunset of the current uh, regulations that were set in place uh, from the 2021 freeze. So if you can, sir, kind of talk us through maybe some of that process and, and just kind of walk us through um, maybe pre-freeze, freeze happens, post-freeze, and into where we're at now, if you don't mind. Sure. No, and feel free to interrupt and sure. bombard me with follow-up questions because there's a lot to unpack there kind of pre-freeze you know texas is not immune to freezes we've had some we've had some big ones historically even back into the 1500s when spanish uh explorers documented bays freezing over so this Mm. isn't anything new but in kind of our more contemporary times we've seen some some severe freeze uh, and fish mortality events even since the early 1980s. So -hmm. this last one we experienced was back in 2021 and everything's trucking right along. You know, we've the trout are, you know, seemingly doing pretty good. Um, We can talk about some of the trends before pre-freeze trends here in a little while. But, you know, that event that started really in earnest on uh, Valentine's Day, 2021 February that's the largest freeze related fish kill we've experienced since the 1980s now those of 80s events both the the 83 and the 2 2 and 89 were larger than this but this is this is the one that you know we can kind of benchmark in those more contemporary times this was this was unique in that it was an extended time period mm-hmm. where we saw t- water temperatures below kind of that lethal lethal thermal threshold for spotted sea trout for about four to five days. Yeah. Um, so you said you had some widespread fish kills. Um, primarily, you know, down on the lower coast was hit the hardest. 80% of what we estimate from the spotted sea trout population, 80% of those that, that um, succumb to the temperatures we saw those down in the lower coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, also saw some large kills up in uh, up in the middle coast. The the thing about that that event is being that it was a four to five day prolonged event. Um, you know, we knew that it was an underestimate. Mm-hmm. We we owned that. Um, you know, our folks just couldn't be everywhere at the same time, and they had recently come off our teams prior to a fish kill event. were out on the bays picking up sea turtles. Mm-hmm. Sea turtles start cold stunning. You know, before the fish start going belly up. Yeah. So our folks had been out picking up sea turtles, and then we quickly transition into fish kill assessment. Um, you know, we probably missed some fish. I know we missed fish in Matagorda and San Antonio mm-hmm. Bay that we didn't pick up, that we didn't see until we went back out with our gill nets that spring of 2021 and noticed just such a reduced catch rates. And all the all the base systems, except for really Galveston and Sabine, which weren't, I would say they, they were minimally impacted by the freeze, all the other base systems showed reduced catch rates. Now, was that trend already in place in some systems? Yeah, it was. Okay, so pre-freeze, we were seeing a little bit more of a trend kind of 
a decline in the in the general fishery. That's right, uh, up Chris. And down the coast. Yeah, okay. and really when we looked at that, we so looked the, at kind of uh, not to cut you off, but the freeze kind of exacerbated that. Just most definitely, okay. most definitely, it did, Chris. And when we looked at that, um, what we did is we kind of looked at a ten-year mean. That's kind of more reflective of our kem- contemporary regulatory structure. Kind of that, you know, within the last ten years, we've made some changes. Um, most recently in 2019, when we went with that five fish mm-hmm. coastwide bag limit. So we felt that ten year look back was uh, was appropriate for looking at this incident and how it compared and benchmarked to more more contemporary times now when you look back into you know we've been we've been setting gill nets in our base since 1975 Mm -hmm. so that's that's the longest continuous running marine resource program in north america so let me let me stop you there if you don't mind sir so and that's one of the things that i have heard is well you know, you guys set the same gill nets in the same spots, you know, that are typically not general highways for fish, um, you know, during certain times of the year, whatever it, whatever it is. And so, in other words, it's kind of giving us a false reflection of maybe the overall fishery. We get, I, I've heard that so many times, sure. right? And, and sure. my, I guess my, in defense of that, you know, I'm like, well, um, it, at least it's a control, right? I mean, if it's the same every single time and and you're kind of showing a, in a controlled environment every single time it's kind of the same process every single time that's that standardization and it's kind of showing that general decline trend well um, maybe that at least that's some data set to go off of as opposed to you know setting them elsewhere and kind of almost restarting the clock that's the way it kind of works in my brain in terms of conceptualizing that sure. and so it, it, to some extent, is that somewhat true? You know, and the the approach we use is is um, you know one, it's very scientifically based, sure. and over it's it's built for the long haul. Mm-hmm. It's not built for hey, let's put some gill nets in those in those trout traffic zones, sure. right? They, it's called a, a random stratified approach, um, and we randomly select spots mm-hmm. that uh, we're going to set those gill nets. So over time, and they're 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 set by gridlets, grids mm-hmm. out in the bay, one mile by one mile grids. So over time, you will have repetition within those within those grids. What we don't want to do is put those same nets in the cherry, the honey holes, sure. and catch those fish over and over and over again. You could have some localized depletion <laughs> yeah, over time if you're setting them in those those <laughs> trout highways, sure. right? So, but you also want to want to see what maybe the the lesser lesser um, suitable habitats are holding as well because mm-hmm. you get different as you know Chris you get different life stages using different habitats in different areas sure. of the bay and different movement and different times of year we even see that within our 10-week gill net sets of how they will transition from area to area just within a, a 10 10 week time frame sure. in the spring and 10 weeks in the fall so it is it is designed to be random sure yeah no <laughs> and that's the power and it, it may sound odd but that's the power the statistical power behind doing that yeah okay so again going back uh, pre-freeze because i cut you off i'm sorry so going back pre-freeze um showing a little bit of a uh, of a decline trend uh in fisheries freeze happens exacerbates that uh you know you guys go out and kind of assess damage then reassess using gillnet surveys um, and so at that point that I guess pick up where I'm, I'm kind of stopping there. What's next? Yeah, no, what is next? So 
and as you as you experienced, we implemented that emergency rule once mm-hmm. we got those spring gill nets back, and we said, "Whoa, we got some we got some reduced catch rates everywhere from, you know, East Matagorda all the way down to the lower coast. We've got to do something. We need to do something now prior to that spawning season. And as mm-hmm. you know, those fish will spawn anywhere from April to September." So it's a long spawning season. So what we want to do is implement those emergency regulations to, you know, put some harvest restrictions for those that next spawning season. Yeah. So we're able to do that. We put in emergency re- regulations for 120 days, and then we went back to the commission, and the commission was supportive, and we extended that for another 60 days for a, a sum in total of 180 days. That mm-hmm. got us to the fall. And then we had a short window when it went back to it went back five. to five fish right. exactly. Um, what we did then is we went through an accelerated statewide process and got what you what you saw those temporary rules or regulations that three fish and the seventeen to twenty three inch we got that in place before the very next spawning season. Mm-hmm. So by end of March twenty twenty two we had those in place. So you had three spawning seasons by the time that that temporary rule expired in sunset on august 31st 2023 we had three full spawning seasons to really kind of accelerate the goal was to accelerate those that population of spotted sea trout and i'm glad you brought that up because you know again you know just uh, i'm in a non-scientific community right through the speckled truth community we see all sides right uh from kind of the meat hauler mentality more conservative catch and release only mentality da 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 uh, and so point is, we, you know, we hear a lot of murmurings, you know, all up and down the social media uh, platforms. And so um, I actually sat in, you know, the, the presentation of um, kind of extending the uh, three fish emergency measure, which was 17 to 23. Right. It's, right. Hadn't been that long <laughs> um, with none over 23 uh, harvested. And so a lot of the feedback that I was getting there, uh, which I tried my best because I think I was understanding what you were saying, which was, you know, we really wanted to jumpstart the fishery by not harvesting the bulk of the fishery, i.e. those that are of spawning potential of like, I think they're 11 inches in length, uh, all the way up to 17 inches. And so now you potentially may have a full, uh, like year uh, of spawning, which on a bell curve is pretty much the preponderance of the population. And so to that end, um, yeah, although in the 17 to 23 inch range, although you re- you've reduced harvest from five to three, you've really, um, and I know most of those to some extent were females, but again, that's that's a much uh, larger population of harvest, if you will. But uh, And so in other words, off the top, it doesn't seem like a, a lot, but you're allowing the, the bulk of the, those that are of uh, spawning potential to kind of jumpstart the fishery and in those that are above the 23 now you've got those genetically gifted fish to kind of continue to the process of seeing some much larger fish in a fishery and so those year classes kind of extend and so um since you know the freeze i can tell you i mean uh seeing at least in the in the, the corpus area uh in, in the baffin complex just a ton of fish gosh between you know eight inches to 28 inches i mean literally it's uh it's it's a beautiful blend of of year classes if you will as opposed to maybe pre-freeze during certain times of the year uh, maybe seeing a lot more larger fish and we're like man i'm not catching any of those 10 to 12 inches well 
last year, I can tell you, you know, in a lot of those same holes that I hit in the, in the wintertime, you are seeing kind of that blend of, again, 10 inch fish to 28 inch fish. Right. Uh, and so I, again, it made sense in my brain. Is, is that kind of what TPWD and biologists were going for, which was, you know, reducing overall harvest, kind of keeping that window uh, of that slot from 17 to 23 to prevent uh, kind of over harvest and allow that kind of younger class, which is the bulk of the fishery to kind of jumpstart the fishery in healing itself. Yeah, Chris, that's a, you said it well. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> you're a student of the game. I right. appreciate that. You're very well informed. You're exactly right. I mean, the, the most reproductive capacity within that population is those fish that have just become reproductively viable. So I'll call them the teenagers. Sure. There's there's so many more just by sheer numbers. There's so many more teenagers out there that are able able to reproduce than some of those older bigger fish. Yes, those those older bigger fish they are what we call more fecund. They have they have more egg mass per per gram of fish or, or egg mass total, I should say. But there's just so much fewer of those bigger mm -hmm. fish. So if you really, if your goal is to really jumpstart, as you say, and accelerate the recovery and really get a lot of eggs into the system, mm -hmm. and eggs means, you know, small fry, small fry means young of the year, and hopefully within two years, we got those female trout entering into the fishery, entering into yeah. that 15, 16 inch size class. Um, so if the, your goal is to really accelerate that recovery, that's the strategy you want to go with. Okay. So that's what we did. Um, you know, we caught a lot of heat for that. I mean, you could pick, you know, a 16 to 22 or a 15 to 20, and there's different there's different benefits to picking each of those, but they're, they're really kind of small when you start nibbling mm -hmm. around the edges of what we call spawning stock biomass. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, I think, you know, listening to the, um, the presentation. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of across the board. And I, I can't remember the exact bar graph, but it kind of showed really your kind of best return on investment. That's and it was exactly kind right. of like in between that 16 to 17 inch range with the with a slot at 23. And so, well, let's fast forward, you know, kind of to uh, today, right? So, uh, well, let me let me go back here uh, just a sec. Um, since the emergency measure went into place to, uh, I would say current, I mean, uh, what are, what are the trends now of the general fish population? Yeah, good question. I'm glad yeah. you I'm yeah, glad yeah. you backed uh, up to uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be doing any scoping. What we've seen, Chris, as far as recovery on those those base systems, you know, Galveston and Sabine, kind of the upper coast, were not were not implemented by that um, or impacted by the reduced harvest regulations. But everything from Matagorda down was. So what we've seen, we've seen some some moderate recovery in fact in the upper laguna i'd say we've we've seen some extraordinary recovery as far as catch rates and i'm, I'm going to speak to catch rates through our spring gill nets because that's when adult trout are primarily um that's what we look at is our spring gill net catch rates both the both corpus and upper laguna and even even the lower laguna have recovered really well aransas bay as well um Matagorda and San Antonio, they just haven't moved as much as we would have liked to seen. So mm -hmm. that's where we're at. We're seeing, you know, we've got that 10 year average, that catch rate, and Matagorda and San Antonio are still below that 10 year average. 
um, both Aransas, Corpus Christi, and Upper Laguna Madre, their catch rates are well above anywhere from 40% to over 100% larger, greater than that 10-year mean. Mm-hmm. Not, not so much in the lower Laguna. While it has increased, the recovery rates have increased a little bit. They're not as much as I'd like to see. So mm-hmm. that brings us to where we are now. Yes, we believe you know conditions were right and those temporary um, restrictive harvest rules we see that they worked in a couple of systems, mm-hmm. several systems, but would they? Would something else work in addition to some kind of fisheries management technique um, help Matagorda, San Antonio, and even the lower Laguna kind of get to where we're hoping to be? And it, our, our goal would be to be at least at least where that ten-year mean is, if not if not more. Yeah. Any any theories or you know, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but any theories as to why those, that kind of upper coast and Matagorda complex hasn't maybe recovered as well as the lower coast? Yeah, no, good, good question. Um, you know, when we see um, the, some of the salinity regimes change during a spawning season, so mm-hmm. anywhere from April to August, um, you can have some movement of those fish that get out of their normal spawning, spawning areas. And we feel that's probably impacted impacted some of the some of the return rate return on investment um you know so you got some environmental variables and we still got harvest occurring we still got Mm -hmm. harvest occurring in those areas which we should uh it's trying it's just simply trying to balance you know providing folks the opportunity to harvest fish if they so choose to do so within their legal means and methods but also shooting for, you know, establishing a fisheries management goal to, to offer that, that quality, you know, fishery for our anglers. Yeah, I mean, because thinking back, at least uh, from now until 2021, I mean, we've had mild winters, minus right. a couple, t- you know, one or two cold snaps. Uh, but we've had pretty mild winters. It, we've had really dry years. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of, and I, I can't speak, I guess, maybe for the upper coast, but at least where we're at, God bless, we need some rain. Uh, and so, I mean, it seems like the stability within, uh, I would say, again, kind of the Aransas uh, all the way down to the lower coast, uh, it seems to be pretty stable, uh, right. at least those growing conditions. And and so that's why it's it's not shocking, but I would that was why I was asking a question in terms of theories, in terms of, you know, why did Maddie and, and Galveston, I know they're a little bit more influenced by the Colorado River, obviously, you know, Sabine and in areas uh, there as well. And so I just didn't know if that had an impact, Uh, but it sounds like, you know, kind of couple a little bit more of the kind of harvest mentality, maybe have had maybe a little bit more of a long-term impact in terms of not allowing that fishery to bounce back uh, maybe as well as it could have. Right. And that's, you know, when we look at these catch rates, those are, those are pretty concrete. All the other stuff is you know can be somewhat speculative yeah. on, our, on our part now we can look at you know the harvest um in those given areas and you see i'll just say this i mean our our angling pressure and we look back you know in more recent kind of uh pre-freeze to now the pressure and it's been about the same but i can say this um since 2028 or t- 2008 i'm sorry in the last 15 years, we've seen a 20% increase in pressure. Mm-hmm. So you think about that. For every four of us that are out on the bay back in 2008, now there's five of us yeah. out there. Um, you know, and we did see even last year some of the pressure increase, um, you know, a small bit from the previous year. So every year it's going up. 
Do you mind me asking, like, how can y'all tell that just through license sales, I would imagine? Well, or? not only license sales, Chris, but our we conduct almost 1,200 Creole surveys. Okay. Creole surveys at all the boat ramps, you know, and okay. that's, again, random, stratified, yeah. random sure. approach. But uh, that's, that's angler interviews. That's our Creole surveys that uh, are going on every single day. And we can ask those questions and count boat trailers and count anglers and ask folks how long you've been on the water so there's a way to do that that our, our folks do that comes up with a, an estimate of what we call okay. pressure in the in in the method the, or the unit is angler hours how okay. many angler hours are spent in the bays gotcha um okay so obviously we've covered pre we've covered during uh just you know post and then kind of where we're at to today uh and so as of what uh i can't remember my months are running together uh, when did the emergency measure sunset that was in that did that ran out there? on august, august 31st okay yep, yep so last month um okay and so interesting um because it seems like um there's a lot of input uh, a lot of input from participants on the in the fishery right really up and down the coast which is uh fisheries fine you know going back to doing what i was doing pre-freeze da 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 and in summer like well, hey, uh, I've kind of enjoyed the the current um, creel limits, and, and I think it's, you know, seeing a better, you know, fishery, maybe those who are participating in Baffin and Upper Laguna and seeing, you know, kind of those better numbers, you know, maybe kind of seeing the tangible results of maybe holding off and, and being more conservation-minded uh, or, or, you know, a myriad of different things. But point is, is uh, folks are seeing a better f- fishery, and they're like, well, I really kind of, I don't know why you're going back to five. And, and the, really the sticking point uh, is not only going back to five, but the one over 25, to, at least in my niche uh, of speckled truth, which is, again, take what you need and release the rest, which is, you know, folks with a little bit more conservative mindset. Um, that's going back to five with a healthy fishery. Okay, get it. But the one over 25 is really the sticking point. So if you can kind of walk us through that whole kind of development and then maybe what's next. Sure. We're excited to introduce a new Texas-based sponsor, Hook & Bullet Purpose-Built Optics. Recognizing all our gear is purpose-built and high-tech, the guys at Hook & Bullet got tired of wearing fashion-driven quote-unquote fishing sunglasses with antiquated lens technology. And because chasing monster trout along grass ledges and potholes is different than pitching a bait to billfish they've partnered with zeiss to scientifically formulate lenses to optimize your specific pursuit let's face it we spend a lot of time and money looking for that big bite so do yourself a favor and check out hookandbullet.life that's dot life backed by a 30-day fishing guarantee you're sure to find a pair of purpose-built optics to help you maximize every opportunity. Down South Lures has been making lures for the inshore angler for years now, and it's easy to see why. From their four inch Southern shed to their much larger DSL supermodel to the three inch burner shed, their versatility is really in every angler's arsenal. Better yet, they're actually made here in the USA as well. So support this Texas brand that supports you, the fisherman. And next time, go check out the hashtag swims in a fall action of a Down South Lure. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. 
Rooted in simplicity and utility, Reel's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider Reel Sportswear. Despite its unique name, Stinky Pants Fishing has been making wade fishing gear for the Texas angler for years. Located here in Texas, they make anything from boga floats to boxes, stringers to wade fishing straps, really anything that the inshore angler needs to make their time on the water more efficient and more effective. So check them out at stinkypantsfishing.com and get some equipment to make you a better wade fisherman. I want to welcome Waterloo Rods as our Season 3's newest sponsor. Located in Victoria, Texas, Waterloo builds some of the most functional rods for any inshore application. Whether you're in the market for a carbon mag, an HP Lite, or a slam mag, or their Salinity series, definitely check them out. Also, check out their Waterloo Pro Shop, which carries most, if not everything, that the inshore angler needs here along the Texas coast. So next time you're in the market for a rod, definitely check out Waterloo Rods, and you might as well fish the best. Mira Lure is an iconic brand found in almost every inshore angler's arsenal. From their 17 or 27 MRs, to the mirror mullet or the top dog, even their soft plastic lineup, as well as the Paul Brown series fat boys. These lures have been trusted by many anglers across the Gulf Coast and beyond. So next time you're out there looking to fire up a bite, remember, tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bite. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky are back again for season three sponsors and we couldn't be more appreciative. These lures and colors, which are produced by some of the most renowned anglers up and down the Texas coast have been producing for decades. So whether it's a Double D or a Fat Boy Floater, and Plum Nasty, Texas Turnip, just to name a few, remember next time you're looking for that next big bite, the big girls aren't colorblind. Well, and let's rewind back to why Sorry. we even had a sunset. You yeah, know, that yeah, was, that's that a was, great question. That was uh, one of the, you know, kind of the uh, concessions we made is, hey, this is, we didn't want this to, um, we didn't want the, the temporary regulation to be um, decoupled from the freeze, right? I mean, th we did that as a result of the freeze, and we felt that those three spawning seasons would be adequate to move the needle as far as recovery sure. and catch rates. So the way we were able to get that passed, we said, all right, we'll come back and reevaluate, re but we're going to let that temporary regulation sunset on August mm -hmm. 31st. In fact, we heard a great... Um, you know, majority of support for doing that, for doing that. So we'd really like the opportunity to evaluate the fishery outside of outside of what just strictly a freeze response, right? Mm -hmm. So now what we're doing is we're really taking a, a hard look, and we heard it loud and clear throughout the summer from anglers. Yeah. I'm an angler. I'm, I'm within the angling community. Uh, we Believe it or not, we put a lot of stock and what our fellow anglers say. Because, you know, within this, this fishery world that we all work in and uh, some of us dedicated our lives to, oftentimes we get, we get caught up in the fish being the, the sole recipient of all the attention within the fishery. Oftentimes our folks, especially fisheries managers, forget that our anglers are vital. They're a critical component of the fishery. Mm -hmm. And without our anglers, I wouldn't have a job. So I do, I do listen and place a lot of stock into what our anglers say. And so we started hearing, you know, even, even before the summer, early on, that anglers were getting 
they were getting conditioned and actually liked the three fish bag. Now there was some, you know, there's some dissenting sure. opinion and, you know, as we've talked about some, you know, um, alternative thoughts about the slot limit. And I've, I've heard is the same as you is, you know, folks are at least, at least the vocal majority to this point, right? Mm-hmm. I've heard from, you know, folks that were not so pleased with the one over going back to the one over 25. But as part of that regulatory approach, we did say we were going to go back to the statewide statewide um, regulation that was in place prior to prior to the freeze. I, I appreciated that. Uh, and maybe it's an outsider eye here, but um, you know, being from Louisiana, and I, I wish our uh, I love our LA, you know, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and and I know they're doing God's work as well in a pretty tough environment. And then couple land loss and erosion and, and habitat and all that habitat loss and all that stuff. But um, just the it seems like the inability to be um, flexible uh, to the fishery demand. Right. And so it's kind of, you know, nice to come to a, a fishery or, you know, uh, yeah, a fishery that's managed by. Uh, yeah, that's managed by. You know you guys which has a little bit more flexibility to adjusting to the conditions right and so now it was loud and clear when you guys had the meeting to me that it was going to sunset and i appreciated that because it was an effort to try to you know do what it sounds like in some parts of the coast happened uh and so now you know having the sunset and kind of sticking to your word Although I'm, you know, I'm not going to keep any more fish, you know, just to do my own part, not to, you know, uh, kind of project myself out there. But my point is, is uh, I'm just going to do my part. But it's really up to us as the anglers. It's given back to us, the anglers, because you guys, you know, one of the all the things that we always hear is once they take it back, they'll never, or once they take it, they'll never give it back. Well, they've given it back to us, right? They've given our resource back to us. It's really up to us as anglers to to kind of how we're going to manage ourselves, you know, through self-disciplined harvest, through taking care of a fishery, through anything, picking up trash, water quality, whatever, whatever, all these things kind of play into that. But a point is, is really, um, I applaud the effort of being flexible. Now we're at, we're at, it's good to have those inputs. Um, and then now it kind of brings us, I think to really the scoping meetings that we're getting ready to have, which is the angler input. And so, um, if you can, Mr. Dacus, like tell us about like these upcoming scoping meetings, um, because now we've talked about kind of pre-freeze to where we're at now, where are we going forward? Great. Yeah. I'd love to share some of that, Chris. I mean, our scoping meetings are, I really look forward to those. It doesn't matter if it's flounder, red snapper, trout, any of our, any of our managed species, but that gives the public an opportunity in an informal, very informal format to just share with us what they define as as a quality fishery and how they would like us to manage the fishery. Now, we'll run through, you know, we'll start with kind of a standardized, um, you know, abundant trends and abundance mm-hmm. slide presentation. Here's yeah. what we've seen. We'll run through some of the catch rates. We'll run through all kinds of, you know, analysis that we want to share with our angling, angling community. Uh, but what we want to hear back is, how do you define that quality fishery? And that means a quality fishery, to, depending on who you ask, can mean a lot of different things. So our challenge is to really try to balance, you know, the folks that 
they define a quality experience by being able to fill their fill their five fish limit others may feel that their uh, top-notch you know experience on the water is catching a big fish or a few fish and releasing them mm -hmm. i know that sounds crazy but that's the that's the spectrum of of angling preferences that we hear about so our job is to really pull out some of those preferences and the way we're going to do that is not only fielding your phone calls and talking to getting out in the public and talking to folks but we're going to have those public scoping meetings and we're going to do uh we're going to do six of them okay um and folks can find those on our on our website we put out a press release but we're going to start um the week of october 17th that's a tuesday we're gonna have a meeting in port lavaca that tuesday night and then the very next night on on wednesday october 18th we're going to go to rockport we're going to go to corpus and we're going to go down on the lower coast in port isabel mm -hmm. and then on that thursday october 19th we're going to go to port arthur and galveston so okay. you can see we got a full coast-wide coverage for these public meetings and really encourage folks to come let us know what you think this is and uh, folks will you know we get a lot of criticism saying oh you've already made up your mind you know i would say that um you know we like we prefer to lead with with our biological science yeah but decisions are made with other other factors at play yeah. and i'll point out when we went to the uh the coastwide five fish bag and you know put the five fish bag up in galveston and sabine there really wasn't just a strong biological need to do that that was based on that was based on angler preferences mm -hmm. that we heard at scoping meetings and we heard back through a survey We'll also be launching a survey soon to a subset of uh, license holders, those yeah. folks that buy either a super combo or a saltwater fishing license. Uh, that'll be run through Texas A&M University, and uh, so we'll get to we'll get to hear from angling, you know, the angling community through that survey. In addition to those scoping meetings, in locations and times, we'll be out there. Yeah, all, we're going to do them all from six to eight, okay. and they're at various locations. Yeah, You'll need check to see our website or see our, see our uh, coastal fisheries uh, Facebook page. Yeah, and I know we've been sharing at least in like our Instagram stories, you know, Facebook, and I've seen it through a myriad of different outlets now, uh, folks. Um, you know, sharing that, my, I guess the biggest thing for me, and you know, I've gotten a couple messages like, man, these are going to be heated. And I'm like, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, I really don't care. Just go. Right. Because, uh, to your point, right. Every angler to some extent has a voice, obviously within reason <laughs> and respect. Uh, but, but point being is, you know, go and, and listen, listen to the data that's presented you're not, you guys aren't proposing a limit reduction or a change or anything like that. You're, you're doing these meetings to seek angler input, right? How do you define your day on the water? How do you define your experience on the coast? Uh, and that's, that's wildly important to what you guys are doing, right? That way, um, I, well, maybe I'll lead to that question, right? What, you know, from the scoping meetings, what are you guys uh, expecting to get out of that? Or uh, maybe not projecting, you know, but really, what's the step after the scoping meetings? You guys collect the data and then just kind of evaluate and go yes, from there? Yes, absolutely. So kind of the next step, Chris, is, you know, and this is all part of, you know, what I'll call the, the sausage making, you yeah. know, blending a lot of biological science, some of the social science, some of the economic science and angler preferences into, you know, a recommendation or not, or not. We, we, yeah. we're, not we're not set on, you know, making a, a recommendation to our commission. 
But we will preview, um, come November 1st, we'll preview our statewide um, item, and that's the spotted sea trout uh, trends and yep. abundance and the results of these scoping meetings and the results of the survey, preliminary results from a survey, to our commission on November 1st. Mm -hmm. We hope to seek, we'll seek some input from them our commissioners, a nine-bodied nine uh, commission, and then come January, towards the end of January, if we do, in fact, decide to, uh, you know, have a, a proposal, we will propose that to the commission in the end of January, January 24th. Okay, two questions. First, and I don't know if you're at liberty to say just, you know, by virtue of maybe the, you know, people's own privacy, but you know, you talk about the commission, you know, the makeup of the commission, like, uh, is it all uh, folks that work here at TPWD? Is it folks from various state agencies? Is it, it like, no, is great, it is it anglers as part of the committee? Like, I don't know. I mean, it would just great ask question. Yeah. No, our, our commission is governor appointed. Okay. And none of those folks, um, they do it, that's a volunteer position. Okay. They are not employed by the department or any other state agency. So those are governor appointed um, a very diverse group of, uh, you know, um, volunteers, essentially. Gotcha. Our commission is, you know, ranges from, um, you know, down in the lower coast to up in East Texas. So, you know, diverse geography and diverse composition. Okay. and not, But it's nine individuals that were government, governor appointed. Gotcha. Uh, all right. And so theoretically here, I'm playing theoreticals, which may or may not be a good thing. I might get kicked out of the building. <laughs> but... Um, let's say you go and, and um, you know, you host the ones that are on the kind of middle coast, right? And, and through various um, input, angler input, right? Um, it, or let's say the bulk of the angler input is, hey, I was content with the three fish limit, none over 23. Uh, I define my day as a, on the water as, you know, going out there, you know, spending time with my family, targeting a big fish and maybe keeping one or two for dinner uh, with, a, with a group of three, right? Maybe, you know, two or three fish out of our group. Um, and let's say like, that's the bulk in like the Matagorda complex area. Um, and in, you know, data or science kind of backs that up with, you know, gillnet surveys that, Hey, that might be a, that might be an appropriate practice. Uh, maybe the best thing for that fishery. Is that something that you guys would then go, well, maybe in the East Matagorda middle, middle coast complex, we can, we can maybe adjust in, in, in um, yeah, really manage that part of the coast isolated from, you know, that same measure in the Baffin complex. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. No, okay. Chris, there, there's that nothing that says that we <laughs> that we can't get creative with okay. our management, kind of the geographical um, difference in, in regulations. Sure. Um, you know, I, I want to say one thing. I mean, we're we're definitely looking to be proactive as we as we see the pressure increase and the you know the population continues to grow. There's folks aren't going to stop saltwater fishing, and that's there's, awesome, uh, right? I mean, exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the fact and you brought it up just a minute ago. The fact that these meetings may be contentious and there may be an overflow of passion is a blessing. Yes. Right? That's because the common denominator is we all care about, deeply care about this resource. And we want to, you know, continue to enjoy that resource, whether that's catch and release or that's a harvest your bag limit. It, sure. Folks will folks will show up and share those opinions. I can't wait to I can't wait to, to hear from our angling constituents. But you're exactly right. I mean, we're uh, we're looking forward to taking all that information 
getting direction from the commission and really thinking through, okay, we heard loud and clear that this sentiment is shared in this part of the coast. Do we, you know, implement a kind of unique or different management strategy for, let's say, the lower coast or for the middle coast and for the upper coast? Because you very well may see um, some differences of opinion, a, a, you know, a perspective gradient, if you will, up and down the coast. As yeah. you you alluded earlier for yeah. your our brothers and sisters to the east, um, you know, they have a different, uh, a little different mentality in fisheries sure. management over in, in Louisiana. So you may see some of that um, the further up you get into, the, you know, Sabine and Galveston. That's not completely unexpected. Yeah. But, you know, I think we're fully capable of managing our base systems in certain parts of the coast differently than, uh, than others with different management objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, getting back to the participation levels, right, and, and that is a great thing, right? I know it's a lot more people on the water, uh, you know, it can crowd spots and areas and, you know, it, it, just getting a little bit more creative as an angler to maybe, you know, find some of these, you know, more elusive larger trout, you know, here and, you know, when we talk about in Speckled Truth and and, it, and adjusting your techniques and, and, and all that stuff, right? But the point is, is, I mean, again, participation in a fishery is awesome because, again, through your participation, through your feedback, that is ultimately what carries our fishery forward, especially if we can get people to participate the right way, right? And I always kind of say that, and that's Mike McBrideism, uh, which is, yeah, having people participate in a fishery is a great thing. Having per- people participate in a fishery the right way is the best thing. Uh, and so that... That's what we've been trying to do is just, again, kind of to take what you need, release rest, kind of, you know, adjust your mindset, manage your expectations. But aside from that, like define what what you're here for. For me, it, it is completely different. I'm insanely passionate about this fishery. It's almost like a, um, a church-like experience. It's, it's beyond me, right, where I go there to escape the day-to-day, you know, uh, duties as a as a father as a guy who's working all the time and and so that's my escape and in targeting a big fish and holding that fish and then ultimately releasing that that is like the icing on the cake and so uh, not to get you know too preachy here but um that's just what makes it so awesome for me and and to your point having so many people with that same passion um in that fishery of taking care of it is a really good thing so please get out to these commission meetings uh and then let your voice be heard because that is going to be valuable, insanely valuable to you guys uh, here at TPWD. And so, anyway, thank you, Mr. Dacus, for kind of running us through that. Sure. I mean, that's kind of one of those things that we were kind of, you know, as we were talking, just like, man, because uh, I've wondered, you know, and I've had a lot of those same questions, you know, from pre-freeze all the way to where we're at and kind of where we're going in the future. And so I think it's valuable for our listenership to at least understand a little bit more with some transparency of how that process takes place uh, because we saw it play out firsthand, you know? No kidding. No kidding. And, you know, I'd encourage folks to, uh, you know, attend, um, you know, attend the public scoping. And if, you know, kind of playing that hypothetical, if we come back with a proposal um, back in, in January, we'll then go out for public hearings, which yeah. is a little more formal, which sure. you each get, you know, two to three minutes to comment specifically on any potential 
proposal sure. package yeah. and that's a little more formal so we would also do that too before we'd come back ultimately in march towards the end of march and seek adoption which is really just that that stamp of approval yeah. um and at that point the commission they could you know they could approve they could deny or they could modify yeah. modify our proposal so well i'm going to use this as a target of opportunity and this may dovetail into maybe some additional discussion but um you know i'll go on record saying i, I you know, I think I like the three fish limit, um, you know, and, and I think the, the 17 to 23 was good. I would actually even go a little bit tighter um, by, you know, having a three fish limit, 17 to 20 inch, 20 inches, because you have a lot of initiatives like release over 20 that are kind of doing some good things uh, up and down uh, kind of the East Coast and through here. And so you're kind of getting a little bit more of that conservation mindset. But you're also given a window uh, of folks if they do want to harvest a few to kind of, again, kind of target specific um, you know, some of that kind of bulk population that we have. Uh, and um, the one caveat I would add to that is um, throwing in the option uh, to harvest, I'm sorry, to buy an overslot tag or, or a couple overslot tags. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard that before. Uh, I've had a couple conversations with some buddies of mine, and, and I like the, the thought behind that, mainly because Although obviously we, you know, we certainly preach catch and release of, of larger fish and, um, and a, a lot of our, you know, listenership is obviously, you know, adhering to that the biggest thing I, I've always tried to say, and that's through conversations with Dr. Greg Stuns is, and I think now with a little bit more of that kind of enlightening information is some of those fish that have some really heavy gill trauma, right. That are sometimes just unavoidable, right. If I'm throwing a jerk bait or a corky and they just choke it and, they're a 27 inch fish and you're literally pulling out a gill rake. Well, we've heard through science, you know, that that fish is probably not going to make it. Uh, and so if I had a tag, I would, I would harvest that fish legally and, and it would not go to waste. Right. And so, um, I don't know, it's just, again, target of opportunity sitting across from you in, in TPWD to provide at least my input. Uh, I'll certainly still go to the meetings, but, uh, uh I'd be interested to kind of see, uh, what other people think, but I don't know if you've had any thoughts or that's come up before. You know, I mean, the the tagging concept is certainly not uh, not foreign to us. Like the, the, the red you know, drum, the red drum oh, yeah, tag, yeah, right? right? right. right. Um, you know, it, it, when you start talking, you know, those those trophy trout, and it depends on how you define a trophy trout. I've heard, you know, folks yeah. say above 25 is a trophy trout. Well, for me, yeah, it probably is. For others like you, Chris, it's probably a no. 30. It's probably a 30-inch fish. Uh, you're talking so few of those fish get to 30 inches you're talking almost based on our you know our age and growth information those are almost those are 10 year old fish Mm -hmm. 10 plus years old so so few of those fish such a small percentage of those fish actually get to that size but the concept you know and that's what i'd like to hear and i appreciate you sharing sharing your preferences uh you know the concept is not foreign to us or setting or setting you know within tarpon and even in black drum we've set that uh maximum size that maximum size or that minimum size that minimum size at that uh at that that uh state record so yeah. you would have to catch, you know, a greater than, I forget what the tarpon state record is, but 100 inches, you would have to catch one above that in okay. order to retain it. Wow. Okay. That's okay. That's good to know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even think about the red, red drum, mainly because I never think about redfish. <laughs> I can but, see where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, I just, you know, uh, again, kind of we're in that and, and, 
you know, admittedly in, in full transparency, it's happened to me, right? Where I've caught, you know, 26, you know, pushing 27 inch fish, heavy five or something like that. And, and I just, I, I, I can't do anything about it, you know, and I, I do my best to revive the fish and sit with it and baby it. And, you know, it might kick off a little bit and then, you know, I see it maybe a hundred yards away, just belly up and like, oh man, you know? I, and so I, I'm also, you know, uh, also being, you know, in speckled truth, the last thing I would want to do is get caught by, you know, a TPWD agent, you know, I'm like writing a ticket for keeping an oversized fish. Well, I can explain that, but you know, I'm not going to violate my integrity. I'm in the air force and you know, our core values, our first one is integrity first. And I live and I make, you know, that a core, uh, value of my own life and, and family. And so, uh, I just don't want to violate that, but I would imagine that a lot of people have kind of experienced the same. Uh, and so that's why I express my little bit that I have, at least while I'm here, uh, for maybe one of those overslot tags, just for at least giving people an option, you know? So, but I don't want to, uh, go too far on that because there's, you know, we're, we're near in time actually. Uh, but I wanted to talk, touch on something that's near and dear to me. And it's within your wheel wheelhouse of your directorate, uh, which is, um, fisheries, fisheries, uh, I'm sorry for uh, hatchery production. Right. No. And Chris, our, our hatchery team, both in, uh, the Marine development center in Corpus Christi and at our Keystone facility, um, and sea center in Lake Jackson, and even at our research facility there at, uh, Periar Bass and, uh, Palacios. Those folks have really kind of doubled down. In fact, after the freeze, and, you know, it was as a response of the freeze, and we, uh, we asked them to really increase production. And boy, did they. They hit it. They, our folks hit it out of the park, Chris. Yeah. Um, on average, you know, before the freeze, we averaged about 3 million spotted sea trout, anywhere from 15 to 20 million mm-hmm. red drum, and about 100 to 200,000 um, southern flounder after the freeze directly after the freeze our folks tripled down their efforts on that very next year in in 2021 we stocked almost 11 million spotted sea trout hmm. this last year we did almost well right at 8 million so we've we've directed our hatchery team to really kind of scale back on some of the red drum red mm-hmm. drummer their populations are pretty stable. Yeah. We've got them where we're, and they're easy to grow. They're simply just an easier critter to grow in the hatchery settings. Um, spotted sea trout, a little more voracious, a little mm-hmm. tougher of a challenge. I mean, about 30 to 40 millimeters, even little guys, they start eating themselves. They start cannibalizing. Isn't that wild? Isn't it? Oh my so gosh. it's a fascinating, it's just a fascinating fish and, you know, provides, you know, uh, a lot of challenge for our, our hatchery director, but also makes them pull their hair out. So we've really, you know, at the director direction of our commission, and uh, you know, we've heard it loud and clear from our from our constituents, our anglers, is, hey, we'd like to see more spotted sea trout stocked, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're going to continue doing that. We're going to double down our efforts on spotted sea trout and southern flounder, and kind of ramp back, not not get out of the red drum business. We grow more than any place in the world. We don't want to do that, but we'll definitely, uh, you know, reduce our our capacity with red drum temporarily and maybe even to the future we'll continue to evaluate and monitor the you know the return on that investment but for now we're really we're really ramping up our our spotted sea trout and and that's to just again continue that kind of front load that jump start of kind of keeping those fish just inundating the community or the fishery excuse me um of just kind of replenishing itself right and and through a little bit of a more of an artificial means but 
uh, again, if you have the population there, then it kind of almost becomes self-sustaining at that point, right? And so uh, God's work that you guys are doing there, and, and I had a chance, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that podcast, but he's a really close friend of ours, and uh, Angelo Cepedos over at the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab, I don't, and he's he's like, man, their facilities are just, I mean, state, state of the art, man. I mean, the best in the world, and, you know, our little scale, you know, here at Mississippi is like, you know, a 10th or a 16th of kind of what you guys are doing, which is, but it's amazing to see him walking through those fish or, or those, uh, those hatcheries. Oh man. One, not only the passion of the people that work there, um, and, and how, um, educated they are obviously in that endeavor, but, um, just what they do is amazing. Right. Absolutely. I mean it, there, I don't know if you guys have something along those lines. I think they call it big Bertha, but, uh, they were trying to grow basically a, a world record. I don't know if you've heard that story, but they had one, I think, in captivity that was like close to 16 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so anyway, she kicked the bucket. Uh, but we were we were able to kind of partner with them through our boat shows and have some kind of live displays of some hatchery fish that, you know, they've grown there to kind of give a visual, right? Because this is people's tax money kind of going to that to support and aside from that they're seeking a little bit more angler participation and providing some samples uh to you know provide to um the hatchery to spawn kind of certain areas um you know from a genetic perspective um but yeah we had one on display it was close to 12 pounds wow. in our booth it was awesome and, and seeing people that were you know pretty you know uh, not foreign to large trout uh, kind of come up like good gravy man that thing's huge and in like then you look over the top of it and the back on that thing was just <laughs> the size of my thigh, which isn't very big, but the size of my thigh it was huge, man. But, um, again, the, ha- the, the hatchery guys just doing God's work. So, well, I appreciate that. And they're, they're a dedicated crew, very much mission driven and just passionate about the work they do. And kind of beyond that, Chris, we've seen the return on investment. Uh, we did, you know, early on, we did some research to really, really gain some some insight on our return on investment of a red drum on redfish. Okay. So we, what we do is we, you know, genetically mark those fish that are coming out of the hatchery, and research shows us that you know there's a range on any given base system. But as we as we did some research, up to 17% of the trout, or I'm sorry, of the redfish that were harvested had those genetic markers that came from the hatchery. That wow. was kind of the high end. Yeah. We saw, you know, anywhere from about 8 to 17%. So that if you think about that, almost one in five. That's amazing. Almost one in five of that particular base system came from hatchery origins. We'd love to do that, you know, once we get enough trout out there yeah. and put some genetic markers into that lineage of fish to do that, repeat that same work. So we can come back. Five years from now, you and I can talk again. I can say, Chris, you know, one out of five trout is coming from our hatcheries. That's insane. So, uh, I mean, are you guys collecting that through like the gillnet surveys or are those? Yeah, or well, we did some specific. That? We yeah. did some specific, you know, research that we can collect through, you know, either anglers that want to donate some tissues or through our, you know, with our gillnets, you're going to have a certain. Yeah amount of mortality that's just kind of the nature of the business um but yeah we collect a whole bunch of fish large sample size and look at those bay by bay and we came up with you know our researchers came up with that figure unbelievable and it's incredible it it? it really is and and that was the enlightening part uh talking with him is even through otolith uh studies um and just looking at the growth rings of those ear bones on the uh, trout otolith is taking some sampling from that and you can determine 
you know, through the life cycle of that fish, right? What base system, what this, you know, the, the, uh, gosh, the, uh, I guess the salinities were, yes. the water temps, yes. like all that stuff, right? The, whatever season that fish was at year four, you know, right. like, holy smokes. I think it's isotope sampling. Is that yes, right? isotopes yeah, so. and otolith microchemistry. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's always enlightening to me just because to kind of study that in, and in just not only that, but in the, in the hatcheries, he was also kind of just seeing some of that behavior into your point, which was, yeah, they have to kind of isolate, you know, some of these larger fish cause they'll wipe out the entire. <laughs> and so in the wild, we've obviously clearly seen that as well as, you know, some of these larger fish eating some of those larger trout, you know, I mean, the biggest trout that I ever caught was, um, like 30 and a half and, you know, through not releasing it, um, because I couldn't, it just kept going belly up. I harvested that fish and it had a 15 inch trout literally. So you in did it. some gut content analysis. It was amazing. Yeah. I'm like, heavens to Betsy. But, um, anyway, it's, it's amazing what those fish will eat. We've always said that they're pretty savage. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. well, uh, Mr. Dacus, we are, we are at an hour. Um, unbelievable. That went, uh, so fast uh, before I close it out. And I wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you kind of want to touch on? It's not that I'd say we got to stop at an hour or anything like that. I just know we're near that. Um, but is there anything else that you want to touch on specifically? Well, certainly while I got you here and while we have our listenership listening. Yeah. About and, Texas you, and you've got a great, great body of listeners, including myself, Chris, I guess, you know, the only thing I would kind of part with is a call to action, you know, stay, yeah. stay engaged, stay. I know it can be, uh, can be frustrating at times it's a it's a commitment you know a, a night out of your evening away from your family or you can bring your family uh, to some of the public scoping meetings if we do end up with a proposal coming to the public hearings and then the kind of the the, the ivory tower uh, public participation is coming right here to texas parks and wildlife headquarters and addressing the commissioners um, you get a if we go through with a proposal and we seek adoption, you also have a time to do that. So I would just encourage our folks to, you know, keep enjoying the resource. Uh, the sky, the sky is not falling, folks. The sky is not falling. We're simply trying to think long term, thinking mm -hmm. about the long game, thinking about being more proactive in how we manage our resources, and for the fishery first and foremost, for the resource, but also. For our anglers, mm -hmm. for our anglers, for for our customers out there, um, so I'd encourage folks to keep enjoying the resource, but stay engaged in the process. And feel free to reach out to any of us. We've got you know eight different stations up and down the coast, three different hatcheries. Um, you know we're we're there at the boat ramps. Um, let us know what you think, whether it's in these you know public hearings or public um, scoping meetings or at the commission meeting. We'd love to hear from you. Can people volunteer in any way at like a hatchery or anything like no, that? No, absolutely. Can people Our, get involved? Yeah, we've got a we've got a, a great volunteer program throughout the department that will place you. We'll coordinate with our you know sure. some of our field field expertise and and place you. It's kind of like a, a dating game. If you want to work in the hatchery, we're going to reach That's out cool. to the hatchery and find that and uh, find see if we can't find some time for you to help volunteer. And, you know, that's that's how we, we how we deliver our mission. We can't do it sure. alone. We need those volunteers. And we've got a just a great group of volunteers there at our Sea Center and our Marine Development that's Center awesome. hatcheries. Yeah. So we'll be uh, a couple of buddies of mine and I from San Antonio. We're going to drive down to one of the commission meetings or the scoping meetings and um, just listen 
right? And uh, I think we're going to go to the Rockport one. Um, I'll see you there. Yeah, <laughs> right. And yeah, and um, no, I mean, so uh, again, kind of biggest thing is is go uh, and, and get involved. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, just provide your opinion. Be there. Listen. Uh, and so we've had so many guests on here from Dr. McKee to Pat Murray to you, sir, to geez, Rousey and Watkins is just getting people involved into their fishery, right? Because at the end of the day, what we've said, I think throughout this entirety of the podcast, which is people are passionate about this fishery. People are passionate about speckled trout. Uh, and that's why we have the community we do is because, um, people are involved. They want to get involved and they love it. Uh, and uh, honestly, it's probably, you know, part of the reason you know, reached out is not because of me, but because of our listenership, because of you guys that listen to this podcast have provided resounding input through me as a kind of a vessel and through this podcast uh, to the point where I'm sitting here, right, and asking some of these questions to provide some transparency to hopefully uh, garner some education for you and kind of future decisions and, and maybe how you manage yourself uh, and your fishery. So anyway, thanks again, Mr. Dacus, uh, for allow me to be here and being on the podcast sir i really do appreciate it chris it's it's my honor and you know i've thoroughly enjoyed our time chatting here but also offline and you know some of the folks you you listed there are some of my heroes some of my conservation heroes so i consider myself very uh very honored to be uh be part of that team yes sir yes sir well hey for everyone else listening uh thanks for staying with us this long again support our sponsors and i'm so sorry it's been forever since we dropped the podcast episode but we're getting back to it and i'll provide a little bit more context in future episodes of kind of what was going on and and some of the things that we have coming in the future but uh thanks again for kind of your patience and listenership and always uh support our sponsors uh that kind of make this thing go and uh again thanks for all your listenership so until next time guys tight lines god bless and always remember take what you need and release the rest god bless